Welcome to BMO COVID-19 Insights. Visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19 for more up-to-the-minute insights. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Dave Casper, and I'm the U.S. CEO for BMO. Thanks to everyone for joining us on what I think will be a very important conversation. We've got a great balance of expertise on this call today, two very well-respected medical professionals here in Chicago, Dr. Paul Casey, who is the Chief Medical Officer at Rush University Medical Center, and Angelique Richard, the Senior Vice President of Hospital Operations and the Chief Nursing Officer at Rush. Thanks to both of them for their time. Uh, Many of you may not know this, but BMO and Rush have had uh, a great partnership over many, many years, Uh, and it's taken different shapes, including the recent launch of what we're very proud of, the Rush BMO Institute for Health Equity. It's a great chance to see our partnership continue to grow and help help improve the equity here in Chicago. We also have some superstars from BMO Capital Markets with us as well. Brian Belsky, our Chief Investment Strategist, and Margaret Cairns, the Head of Fixed Income Macro Strategy. Brian will speak on how how to look at the economy and the markets today, how they've trended throughout the pandemic, and factors that may impact where the economy and the markets will go from here. And Margaret will provide an update on the Federal Reserve and the Treasury. Lots to talk about there. To our customers on the call today, thank you for your business. Thanks for putting your trust in BMO and taking the time out of your schedules today to join us for what I'm hoping will be a lively and informative discussion. We'll have questions at the end, and you can submit those questions during the call by typing them into the chat at the bottom of your screen. Uh, Before we begin, I want to uh, put the disclaimer on that uh, uh, the contents uh, that you're going to hear today are for information purposes. Uh, please see your consultant. Please see and consult your physician if you have any health questions. But we have some great uh, sources here today. So let's start with our good friends from Rush. Uh, first off, to Dr. Casey. First question. Uh, hello, Paul. Thank you for joining. Hello, Angelique. Um, good morning. Thanks for having us. Well. Thank you. So, Paul, first question to you. Give us kind of an update. Where do we currently stand on the pandemic, especially now that we have variants and as kids return to school and people go back to work? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, David. And thank you again to all uh, everyone that was able to join, as well as for the continued partnership with uh, BMO Harris. It's something we're really proud of and talk a lot about at Rush as well, the joint work around health equity. So I'll tell you, you know, certainly no surprise to anyone that we are still well in the midst uh, of the pandemic, um, although we are beginning to see the uh, the downward slope of the Delta variant that has really caused the surge of cases since about mid-July, where it became the predominant strain throughout the United States. And prior to that had, of course, gone through uh, Europe as well as India. So that's encouraging that we're, we are seeing cases go down uh, in most places throughout the country. Now, I think the other thing that's important to note is that when one looks at the map of hotspots throughout the country or places where there are still cases, it's really inversely proportionate to the vaccination rate 
in those areas. And that's no surprise, uh, you know, with what we know about the vaccine efficacy, uh, that we continue to see a number of uh, hotspots pop up where there just hasn't been that level of uptake as we'd like with the vaccination. So again, you know, we're, we're, the one thing we've learned about this pandemic is it's inherently unpredictable. Uh, that being said, you know, we, we closely uh, trend the cases throughout the country and certainly here in Chicago, and we're encouraged by what we've seen in the last week or two. Paul, um, question, and I, uh, because we're a North American bank, I was uh, just down the hall with my Canadian colleagues that are here in the U.S. today, and they are just about at 80% of double vax in, of those that are eligible. Where do we stand? Where do we stand in some of the real hot spots? on that. And then also give us a little update on the booster as well. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the vaccine uptake here in the United States has really been quite variable. Uh, there are areas uh, overall, when you look at the United States on a whole, it's about 55% of Americans that have, of eligible Americans that have been vaccinated, fully vaccinated, and about 64% of Americans that have had at least one vaccine. Now, that also varies quite a bit by age group. The good news there is that it's about 83% of those over 65 that are fully vaccinated and 94 that have received at least one vaccination. And that's certainly the most at-risk group uh, for it as well. So we still see the trend as well in terms of uh, the vaccination rate. You know, I can tell you that here in Chicago, where we closely track the hospitalizations, that about 99% of the patients that we see that are hospitalized are unvaccinated. So, and that's really the case throughout the United States is, uh, and I'm sure other countries throughout the world, is that the hospitalizations are really being driven by the unvaccinated. So where we see in the news, you know, states and cities that are overwhelmed and have no more ICU capacity, those are the states and cities in which the vaccination rate tends to be quite low. Now, in terms of vac in terms of the vaccine boosters, obviously that a lot of that news is just emerging. Um, and like any vaccine, we've seen the science is really telling us what we expected with the COVID vaccine that over time the immunity would wane somewhat uh, in terms of the efficacy, and that's the case for the vast majority of vaccines. We're seeing that the the data is really supporting that that's most pronounced uh, in those that are over sixty or sixty five years old and. That was a study out of Israel that really helped the CDC uh, to guide that decision because they've been following this closely. And it looks like that waning immunity starts around six months after the second dose of the vaccine. So thus the recommendations of the CDC advisory panel uh, to do a booster vaccine after six months for those that are over 65 or those that are high risk, um, as the CDC director uh, Rochelle Walensky put forward people in high risk exposure. Um, they are also recommended to get that booster vaccine. So something worse. We've certainly gotten a lot of questions about uh, here at Rush, and we've made plans to roll that out uh, throughout the city as well. Angelique, um, as we all know, there there are a lot of people still who, for their own personal reasons, are deciding not to get the vaccination. Um, can you give us your insights, uh, kind of explain the hesitancy and some of the ramifications of this? Sure, Dave. Um, I, too, want to um, thank uh, BMO for having this. I think doing this is one of the most important things that, that we can do for our employees and, and, and quite frankly, um, uh, at large. 
Um, there are multiple reasons for uh, hesitancy. There's fear, there's uh, lack of information or uh, a knowledge deficit. There's uh, myths and untruths uh, about the virus as well as the vaccine. Uh, and there's uh, mistrust among some uh, around the, the vaccine as well as, in some cases, healthcare uh, as, a, as a whole. And I, I think the ramifications um, and the, the consequences of this are what we're seeing, right? I think it's this increase in cases, the uh, growing numbers um, in, in different parts of the country um, uh, of COVID cases, um, opportunities for there to be further vi uh, virus variants. Um, and as Dr. Casey mentioned, states where, you know, you're seeing the highest number of cases, strong correlations with the lowest number of um, uh, vaccine rates. And obviously the, the, uh, the, the worst uh, consequence uh, is uh, growing deaths uh, from the virus. So, Angelique, um, what's this doing? What is this uh, hesitancy doing to the healthcare system and healthcare professionals? And as long as I, we, we all or many of us woke up today to see what's going on in New York City, where uh, we're firing uh, healthcare professionals if they haven't been vaccinated. So, uh, you can go. The, you can take this place. Take this question anywhere. But I'd love to hear what the impact has been, not well, only in Rush but in general. Dave, it's going many places. I, I think this has truly been one of the most uh, difficult challenges in healthcare, um, certainly in, in my lifetime. And uh, in many cases at many organizations, it's at a crisis level. So um, there are multiple strains and stressors on the healthcare system. There are shortages, as you just described, uh, of healthcare staff that um, uh, are either a result of the uh, of, of taking a position um, and mandating vaccines or um, because of the pandemic itself. Um, there are limited um, bed capacities and uh, workforce deficits. Um, you know, you hear a lot about uh, nurses on the news, but um, these there's food and nutrition workers and and transporters and our BBS and security staff, um, respiratory therapists, those are some of the uh, key challenges that healthcare uh, systems are having uh, from a workforce perspective. Um, there's supply and equipment um, uh, challenges and deficits. There's a strain, there's been a strain on the financial viability of many healthcare organizations and their performance, um, the uh, limitation of services for at different points in this pandemic, um, uh, such as, you know, surgical elective cases um, has also been a challenge. And then there's just the access and limitation, um, again, that many healthcare um, organizations have either gone through or are going through uh, for patients with uh, non-COVID healthcare needs, um, somewhat in competition with patients who um, have COVID, so they're vying for the same resources and the same uh, and the same beds. So um, it, it has been um, a, a real challenge and a real strain, I think, on healthcare organizations, certainly across the country. Thanks, um, and I, I we see it everywhere. So, uh, Paul, back to you. Um, so, a large number of our population have actually had COVID. 
uh, and some have had it for you know a year or more. Uh, what are we seeing? What's the science tell us about some of the long-term effects of those that have had COVID, uh, regardless of whether it was a mild case or uh, more severe? I'd love to hear that. I know our audience would as well. Yeah, that's a great question. Thanks, Dave. And, you know, the honest answer is the science is really still emerging on this. Um, and we're actually participating in a large uh, CDC-sponsored trial around long hauler syndrome, as it's called, and what those symptoms are. Uh, we have a multidisciplinary clinic actually here, and I can tell you that the the symptoms that we're hearing from those that are uh, at that clinic really tend to be persistence of a cough, um, really persistent fatigue to the point, you know, we, we've had a few young, very healthy 30-year-old uh, individuals that say they can barely walk from their car into work. Uh, and, and they also complain of this persistent kind of uh, brain fog or, you know, difficulty with uh, the same cognitive ability. Um, headaches are common, uh, as well as really myalgias, uh, you know, muscle aches, things like that. So, so it's clear to us that, you know, that this does not or very rarely happens with other uh, common viruses, you know, certainly cold viruses, flu viruses, there's few sequelae, um, but we are definitely seeing a higher incidence of some of these persistent effects with COVID. Uh, so, so that's something we're keeping an eye on. It's something I think the science will continue to emerge on, but it's not a small number of the population that ends up with some uh, sequelae. Uh, lasting anywhere from weeks to months. The uh, science yet that says uh, if you've been vaccinated and you have COVID, whether that will make any difference in the long-term effects? That, that's really a key question. And I don't think we have uh, the data necessarily now to actually answer that. I think the, the feeling from what we're seeing early on, and I think the data will support, is that the vaccine's very effective in decreasing the burden of the virus, uh, both, the, both the actual amount of virus that one's infected with, as well as those long-term effects. So I, what we are seeing within the uh, our long-hauler uh, clinic is really those that are unvaccinated um, have accounted for, you know, 99.9% of the cases we're seeing there. So I think, I think the science will support that as that data emerges. Thanks. Um, Angelique, all of us that uh, are running businesses or managing businesses are, you know, I think, uh, you know, always questioning our decisions, what we can do, what we can't do. Uh, I will say at BMO, we've said, uh, Oh, we've no longer made it optional to tell us whether you're vaccinated or not. Everybody has to tell us that's mandatory. And uh, they either are vaccinated or expect to be, or they're not, or they're going to, or they'll tell us it's really none of your business. <laughs> and uh, we've said for those that are in category two or three, if your job requires you to come to work, uh, we need to have you tested at least twice a week. And that's kind of going into implementation today. So that's, that's not all the way to a mandate, but it's pretty close. Um, I'd love your ideas. What, what should we be doing? What can we be doing? What would you suggest to all of us in businesses? Uh, what's kind of the best, best route to take to nip this in the bud as much as possible? Yeah, I think, uh, let me first start by saying, I think, uh, you know, uh, courageous leadership is needed uh, now more than ever. And so I certainly applaud you and your team, Dave, for 
uh, making those really, really tough decisions. Um, um, and we've had to make similar ones. So um, uh, can appreciate uh, uh, the discernment that goes into that. You know, I, I think that there's a, here's the good news. I think there's a lot that, that can happen and that we can do um, as it relates to our, our staff, our employees. I think you know, this sounds very basic, but it, it really is. I think we need to seek first to understand where people are at. Um, I think we need to listen and educate um, uh, individuals because there's so many, as I as I said earlier, so many myths and untruths and that they're hearing in their communities as well as, you know, on the news. Um, I think in many ways, uh, a grassroots uh, approach is, um, the best approach, in particular with those who are struggling with this decision, um, and um, you know they're in a in a in a tough position as well, trying to um, uh, make this decision, and and in many cases, you know, determine if they're going to be able to work. Um, uh, so I, I think that you know this this requires partnerships and mobilization of. Um, key trusted individuals um, uh, and whether those are, you know, we have partnered with community and religious leaders uh, within the community. Um, this also means, you know, key and trusted individuals within your organization, um, maybe individuals that look like or um, have similarities to individuals who are struggling with this uh, decision um, uh, would be uh, helpful to them. Sports heroes, we did a huge campaign with them um, because we recognize the importance that they have in, uh, in, in, in various communities, town halls like this, um, uh, small groups, kind of a peer-to-peer -peer approach, um, and personal stories. And uh, if I may, I'll share one of those personal stories. Um, uh, my doorman for over 20 years um, uh, had uh, really struggled with um, the decision around getting the vaccine. And um, I think I had been talking to him since um, December uh, uh, up until we successfully got he and his his uh, teenage son vaccinated. Um, it took every day having a conversation about this. It took understanding and listening to what his fears were. Um, and really what pushed him over the edge was um, understanding that he trusted me, right? I'm a healthcare provider, I'm a nurse, um, and um, offering to give he and his son the vaccine myself, which is ultimately what pushed him, what worked for him. Um, and we, it, it was probably, I probably was more um, excited and uh, um, happy about that than I was my own vaccine. Um, so that's kind of what I mean about this you know, make it personal. These are our employees, our greatest assets, um, and uh, and and really uh, getting to that kind of grassroots level with um, with them um, to help them uh, to uh, through this this discernment and and uh, decision. So that, those are just some ideas, great, Dave. <laughs> oh, it's a it's a great story, and I'll tell you, I think we've all learned to kind of check our judgment gene in our drawer before we come into work and, and listening. Uh, everybody has a story. And uh, 
know, it's easy to say, well, what, what, how can you be so stupid? And that, that is actually the wrong approach. I totally agree. You, uh, you may get a few people asking for house calls, Angelique, because uh, we probably all <laughs> know a few people it. that could use your magic touch. Happy uh, to do it. <laughs> so uh, last question for you, Paul. Um, I, I'm an optimist and our next speaker, Brian, is the ultimate optimist in a, in a good way. Um, tell us, give us some hope as to why we should be optimistic uh, on where we are in the virus and the pandemic. And if that's the wrong question, you can take me down the other way and tell me why I should not be so optimistic. So I didn't mean oh. to lead the witness. Uh, no, absolutely. You know, I, I think uh, Angelique and I both fortunately uh, fall in the optimism camp as well around here. <laughs> so I would say, uh, you know, we are also cautiously optimistic. I mean, when you look back 18 months ago to where this started, where we didn't know what the symptoms were, we didn't know how it spread, we didn't have any effective treatments, we certainly didn't have a preventative uh, treatment like a vaccine. We've come an incredibly long way, and that's reason for optimism. We know so much more about the virus uh, in, in every single way we possibly can. And we really now know how to prevent the spread of the virus effectively. It's just kind of getting people over that hump to get there, right? I, I would say I, I add the cautiously piece because, you know, every new COVID infection allows the virus the opportunity to mutate. Um, and create a new variant. And that's why we closely track the variants of concern across the world, uh, because really it's going to take, this isn't a U.S. effort or a, a Canadian effort. It's a global effort to really get the vaccine, vaccine levels to where they need to be uh, in order to prevent the emergence of uh, variants. And, and of course, the concern there is that there may be a variant that could evade the antibodies generated by the vaccine. So that's something we really need to continue to keep a close eye on. Hey, I'm, I'm feeling better. So uh, <laughs> Drs. Casey, Dr. Richard, or Paul and Angelique, um, you guys have been great. I, I can't thank you enough for all the great work you do at Rush and uh, for all of our communities. So thank you. Keep it up. Really appreciate it. Um, we're now going to turn things over to our BMO Capital Markets side. And our first speaker is my very good friend, uh, our chief investment strategist, Brian Belsky. Brian's going to talk to us a little bit about what he sees in the markets and how all of what we've heard and all that we know uh, will uh, have an impact on the economy going forward. So over to you, Brian. And thanks again, Paul and Angelique. Thank you, Dave. Uh, I'm excessively humbled to be sharing uh, this with you. This is my 18th or 19th COVID uh, call that we've done for clients, and and I'm struck by uh, Paul and Angelique and how how clear, concise, and complete they have been with their comments. And Angelique, uh, Angelique, I'm sorry, made an awesome comment with respect to myths and untruths. And many of you know me that I'm a myth and untruth buster, uh, and I seek the truth, and and I have faith. And I have faith in the U.S. economy and stock market, and I have faith in the Canadian economy and stock market, and that's what has kept us so bullish. And so at the end of my formal comments, we'll kind of talk about uh, what our forecasts are with respect to what all of this fun stuff means in terms of the Fed and the economy, uh, in terms of the stock market. But I really think uh, people have to kind of step back and pat themselves on the back and, and really understand that the transition and the pivot that we've made as a society and as a marketplace has been unbelievable. And it really speaks to the strength 
of the United States stock market, our companies, and the Canadian stock market and our companies. And we have to start believing that. So I'm going to steal Angelique's myth and untruth, and we'll talk about that in a bit. So let's talk about the Fed. My great colleague and friend, Margaret Karen, is going to talk more about uh, specifically with respect to interest rates after myself, obviously much more eloquently. But let's talk about the Fed. Let's talk about what that means for the economy and some political things that have been going on, obviously, in Canada and now uh, the U.S., especially this week, and then what it really means for your money. So first off, in the Fed, uh, the top of the house view is that the Fed is most likely not going to be raising rates for a while yet. Uh, and the taper talk, which now is uh, kitchen table type fodder, uh, much like quantitative easing was. Uh, in fact, uh, back in uh, 2007, 2008, we didn't even know what quantitative easing was. We had to go look it up in the uh, dictionary. Uh, just like we had to go look up what taper was. And just for some perspective, we've only had one official taper in the history of the Fed. And it just seems like the market and the economy is way too fixated on, on, on the taper. Be that as it may, I think the key thing from the Fed's perspective in a very big picture standpoint is that been excessively communicative. And we're living in an age in society and business that we want to know everything right away. And I believe Mr. Paul has done a very, very good job in terms of, of kind of laying the groundwork for eventually raising rates. Now, he's been a little bit more <clears throat> ambiguous with respect to his date of raising rates, but pretty clear he's going to talk about tapering in, in November and then uh, really start doing the tapering in December. That's the House view. And I think it's pretty much consensus as well. So the market likes this, that, th that we seem to have the, the same type of messaging from the Fed and consistent messaging from the Fed with respect to interest rates. In terms of inflation, uh, the Fed has been very clear that they continue to believe that it's transitory. It seems to me that um, everybody kind of forgets that the smartest person in the room is the Fed, followed by the stock market, and they, sometimes they flip back and forth. And we, we seem to be debating this transitory inflation issue. We're going to go with the Fed. The House needs to go with the Fed and what they're saying with this. And there's been a lot of talk with respect to bottlenecks and the, and the like. And we continue to believe that this is still a quarter or two effect with respect to inflation. And I think the key metric that many people are, are forgetting with respect to, to Mr. Paul is that last August at Jackson Hole, he changed the mandate away from inflation and toward employment. And if you read his statement last week, the first thing he talked about was employment. And I think that that remains the quandary on how we're going to get to a sub 4% unemployment, which... Um, Treasury Secretary Yellen continues to point toward with respect to the Biden administration. So I don't think there's any easy answer exactly uh, when the Fed is going to raise rates. It looks like it's probably going to be well into 2022. Um, but what does that mean for growth? Well, if you take a look at where GDP is in the United States, uh, we're forecasting at BMO 5.8% and 5% in Canada. But I, what I think is interesting is that we have a pretty big drop off expected in the U.S. going down to 3.5%. GDP, but Canada actually um, is going to be surpassing the U United States next year by about 100 basis points uh, with respect to GDP. And I don't think anyone's talking about that. And I think that really sets up Canada to do quite well, especially here in the fourth quarter, which is our call to outperform from not only an economic perspective, but from a stock market perspective. <clears throat> but I really think that Canada, uh, is fortunes are obviously tied to the United States with respect to cross-border relationship in terms of fundamentals in, in the economy. But I think uh, many investors around the world uh, need to start thinking more about Canada. On to politics, uh, which you've heard me speak before. We continue to believe that investors give politicians way too much credit. 
politics, we've proven that has nothing really to do with the absolute performance of the stock market. It's really about the trajectory uh, of what happens. And and I think, too, let's talk about, let's use Angelique's, I have no original uh, thought, so let's talk about Angelique's uh, in terms of myths and untruths. I'll, I'll, I'll harken back to the fourth quarter following the U.S. election. And then the first quarter uh, following um, when when the blue wave happened, and it happened uh, for real, and there were a lot of fears uh, that a full-blown democratic government was going to derail the bull market. Hmm. That didn't happen. We're up 20% this year, uh, and GDP continues to grow. And I think there's too much assumption uh, with respect to giving those politicians too much credit on to what's going to happen this week with respect to the budget battle back and forth. We continue to believe it's the House view that they'll they'll put some sort of patchwork deal together to keep the government open. I think that's pretty clear, and it's easier for President Biden to do that uh, relative to some other presidents, especially given uh, full control of Congress. I think the infrastructure bill is still a little bit iffy, and so too is even more so iffy are the taxes situation. So you kind of go back to the beginning of the year and think about all the myths and untruths with respect to what supposedly was going to happen on the political front. Again, let's not give politicians as much credit as I think maybe the media and we're afraid of. Let's really focus on how strong we are as an economy and how strong we are as a stock market. And we've gotten through this and we've proven that it's not right to be uh, fearful of what potential politicians could do. Speaking of politics, we had a very important election in Canada this week, and it was status quo. The, the liberals won. I think what's interesting is, is my good friend and colleague Doug Porter wrote about it last weekend in terms of of, of budgets. A Canadian, uh, I'm sorry, the biggest the biggest province, Ontario. There was analysts um, seeing a budget deficit of twice what it came out with, and so I think that there's a, a resounding fear uh, that we're spending too much money. And I think that that Canada, from a from a Bank of Canada perspective, is going to continue to follow Fed with respect to what's happening in interest rates in the United States. But the Canadian economy is doing quite well and jobs are coming back. And I think the key thing from the Canadian side of things, as it is in the United States, is just the housing side. Housing continues to be very strong and lending there is very strong, especially uh, on on the residential side. So let's talk about what to do with your money. Uh, We continue to be bullish. As Dave said, uh, we've been on record by saying, the United States stock market has been in a 20 to 25 year bull market that started in 2009. Uh, and I think much of this has been driven by uh, excess speculation on the, on, on the negative side. This year, we were supposed to have a negative year. The, the month of September was supposed to be bad. You had a lot of people that do what I do from the strategist and economist side calling for a 10 to 20% price correction, meaning prices will go down. Well, funny thing happened. Uh, prices are basically flat for the month of September. September typically is a more volatile month. However, it's this type of chicken little analysis that I think is more about grabbing headlines and driving fear than what is true. So what is true? Uh, Canadian stock market is doing a wonderful job in terms of earnings. In, In fact, the last couple of months, we've been writing about the earnings recovery in Canada and using adjectives like epic. And that epic earnings growth is transitioning into fantastic uh, cash flow, which of course in Canada, which is very important, dividend growth. And so we think Canada is going to uh, continue to outpace the U.S. I think for the fourth quarter and well into 2022 uh, with the great financial companies and the great material companies, great consumer discretionary companies, industrials and material and and uh, 
those areas that will continue, I think, uh, to outperform. We are overweight the same sectors in the United States, that those being financials, consumer discretionary, industrials, and materials. We believe uh, a balanced approach to investing, being equal weight, I'm sorry, growth and value is the best way to play it. We've had this ebbs and flows type market, growth, growth stocks outperform, then value, it becomes under, under, oversold, I'm sorry, and then rallies back up again. Same thing with small, mid, and large. And that's why in the beginning of the year, we said equal weight everything. It's been the exact right call. Now, if you care to hear about a three to five year outlook, uh, we'll provide one. We continue to believe that the stock market uh, is going to be achieving 13 to 15% compound annual growth over the next five years, if not 10 years. And our favorite sectors by far are technology, communication services, and discretionary. Discretionary because we're good at a couple things in America, especially buying stuff. And what are we buying? We've proven more than ever, especially during the pandemic, with respect to the need and demand for more technology, more content. And I think those trends are going to continue, not just from a personal side, but clearly from a manufacturing side, as we depend more on robotics and more on bringing manufacturing capacity back to the United States. So that leaves us at 4,800 uh, for an S&P 500 target on $210 of earnings. It's uh, the second time we revised our targets for both the U.S. and Canada in, in, uh, in a year. We rarely do that. And I think that really speaks to our confidence with respect to what we're saying in stocks in Canada. We think all-time highs for the TSX at $22,000 and $1,400 of earnings. And again, as America goes, so goes Canada. And we love the cross-border relationship on a fundamental basis with respect to that. Now I'm going to hand the ball off to, my again, my very good friend, Margaret Cairns, who is BMO Capital Markets, Head of Fixed Income, Currency, and Commodity Strategy. Margaret? Thank you. Thank you very much, Brian. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. Brian mentioned Fed taper and Treasury market pricing, so I will begin with that. Basically, what's been happening throughout the course of this year is the market, the Treasury market, has been pricing to the expectations of how the Fed will react to inflation on the ground and future expectations for inflation. So what we saw earlier this year was the market pricing in a reflation trade as the expectation was that the Fed would wait to taper and that liftoff would be a few years out. And at that point, tens, of course, reached the highs for the year around 174. And since then, what we've had is the Fed actually messaging that they were not willing to let inflation run hot for too long in order to reach their employment mandate, which, of course, now includes inclusive employment as well as full employment. So basically, earlier in the year, the market thought that inflation was going to run hot for quite a bit of time longer than they're currently pricing. And so what we saw was rates peaked in March, late March, and rallied back down quite hard um, throughout the course of the remaining course of the year up until the past few weeks where, once again, the market is pushing rates higher. So our view right now is that basically 10 probably have another 10 to 15 basis points to run before we see better buying coming in from our large institutional clients. And we do talk to large institutional clients every single day. And so this is kind of what they're telling us. And we actually think that rates are going to rally back down, back to the 125 to 135 range 
in tens um, by the end of the year. And then next year, we will see a push higher, but not too much higher. We're really looking for 175 to 2% in 10-year yields. Plus, what's really going to be critical next year, and even, even now, I guess a different story in the market, is what will happen to five-year yields. Now, five-year yields, of course, should reflect the full Fed tightening cycle. We pushed up um, just past 1% uh, today, and we expect that pressure to continue through year-end, probably reaching 110 to 115, and then 140 by mid-year next year. So again, we're expecting times around 175 to 2 and fives uh, to push up to 140 early next year. In terms of Fed taper, you know, that, that ship is failing, as uh, Brian mentioned. Uh, the Fed is on a pace to taper, uh, announcing as soon as November, uh, decreasing purchases by $15 billion in total per month. Over this period, the Fed will still purchase $280 billion in treasuries. And the way that we're thinking about tapering is it's a reduction in the tailwind pushing the economy forward. And that is very different than a tightening cycle, which is actually a headwind. And so the market is viewing the headwind. Of course, we know what the headwind does. It slows growth. It will contain inflation. We know the Fed has the tools to to fight inflation. And the market does, in fact, believe this. And this is reflected in the the still low long-term yields that we see today. So, of course, when the Fed does tighten, which the market is currently pricing for late next year, of course, we are going to have some changes in the composition of the Federal Reserve Board, uh, which could possibly slant more dovish and push the Fed off until 2023. And, you know, of course, a year is a long time in in the markets for even for um, forecasts. So the data has to evolve as the Fed expects in order for them to lift off later this year. Uh, the market's expecting 25 basis point increments, uh, probably about three a year. Um, of course, you know, much more, uh, I guess, aggressive than we've seen in this last cycle where we started off with one, uh, you know, for an entire year, followed by, you know, 125 a, a year later. So it really depends on the evolution of the data. You know, we are in the inflation is transitory camp, and we do think that rates will remain relatively low historically. And this is based on the longer-term demographic trends, the technological changes in in the economy that should continue to weigh on employment. We also have a a part rate problem in the United States that's going to take some time to work out in addition to the over 5.3 million people, or I guess employment numbers that are 5.3 million below what they were in February of 2020. So this is going to take some time. Um, we do think the curve, of course, is going to continue to to flatten um, by, by five, five thirties. Uh, interestingly, one thing to note is that we are expecting the U.S. Department of Treasury to begin cutting coupon issuance as soon as November our projections are that they are about nine, they would be about 900 billion overfunded next year if they did not cut coupons. So the coupon, the cuts actually 900 billion will be made up um, via bills as well as coupon cuts. And if you think about that, while the Fed is slowing its purchases and the Treasury is cutting coupons, there's there's some bit of an offset to that. Now, that said, the amount of Treasury coupon debt that will be available 
to the public markets next year will be a record amount, over $2 trillion, about $300 billion more than last year. And of course, when the, the Fed came out of the gate in March of 2020, um, uh, the, the net amount available to the public was actually about negative four or $500 billion. So our expectation is that the coupon cuts will offset some of the decrease in Treasury purchases. Another positive, I think, for the market that we should probably mention is that the Fed will own and continue to own over $5 trillion in Treasuries. They will roll these over um, at auction, and that is a, an enormous amount, right? They own 29% of Treasury coupons outstanding. Uh, and so that's still, even though we're decreasing this uh, tailwind to the marketplace, or they are decreasing the tailwind, the, the fact that they're still holding a large balance of Treasuries is quite positive. Uh, in addition to uh, that, they still will be buying $280 billion. Now, of course, when the Fed does start to tighten, it does, in fact, uh, become a headwind. Uh, one question that we are getting over and over again in these markets is about credit spreads. And credit spreads have traded in about a 10 basis point range a year to date. Uh, they are near the post-great financial crisis types right now. And many are asking, well, if the Fed pushed, everybody out the risk curve um, during QE, will that actually reverse once they slow QE down or actually start uh, tightening? And when we think about this, we think about last year alone, we had $1.7 trillion in treasuries available to the market and uh, you know, corporate debt issuance was still near record highs. Now, on a net basis, uh, corporate debt issuance should come in around 400, 450 billion this year, uh, well below the over 1 trillion uh, last year. And uh, next year, it'll, it'll likely slow as interest rates rise a bit. And so some of that will offset. We continue to expect uh, IAG credit spreads to remain near uh, the post-grade financial type, if not uh, trade slightly through them before coming under some slight pressure next year, but we're not expecting any great big blowouts in credit spreads. So again, moderately higher interest rates uh, in terms of treasuries next year, really watching the five-year sector for a 530 flattener um, and expect 10s in the 175 to 2% range, which is um, probably quite a bit below the rest of the street, but our interest rate call has been quite right over the past several years. So with that, I will pass it back to Dave Casper. Thank you. Hey, uh, thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Brian. Um, great, uh, great uh, summary of what's going on. Um, okay, we have time for some questions uh, that some have submitted ahead of time when you registered and uh, some have shown up already. So uh, first question uh, is to Paul. Uh, if I previously had COVID one, three, six months ago, is a vaccine necessary? How long must one wait after having COVID to obtain the vaccine? That's a great question. And so the recommendation around that is to wait uh, until 90 days after having had COVID uh, for a vaccine. So importantly, if you've had COVID, that's not the equivalent of being vaccinated. So even those that have been sick with COVID still need to get vaccinated. Uh, but waiting that three-month period will make sure you don't have the, uh, you know, you, you'll be covered through that period and not necessarily have the same uh, reaction to the COVID vaccine itself. Thanks. Uh, next one, Paul, you're popular. <laughs> and this could have been mine, but it's not. 
if I had the Moderna vaccination, should I wait for the Moderna booster to come out? That's a, another great question. Yeah, my advice is yes, uh, that the safest bet is to wait and to be boosted with the same vaccine as your initial dose. And that, again, is in line with the CDC recommendation. Um, the Moderna booster doses should be approved, we anticipate, in the weeks ahead. So it shouldn't be too long a wait. Uh, but that the recommendation, if your initial series with, with, was with Pfizer, go with Pfizer. If your initial series with, was with Moderna, go with Moderna. And that's really because that's the data that we have available to us to know how effective those are. Okay. Thank you. Um, Paul, allergies are bad right now. This could be mine too. How would one differentiate between I have my usual allergies uh, or, or whether or not I need to get uh, COVID tested? Uh, yeah, this this is a tough one. And I can tell you with uh, three little boys at home, uh, when one of them wakes up snotty, it changes uh, it changes from what we used to do a couple of years ago about a common cold. So, you know, the advice around this is really if you get seasonal allergies and you've always had seasonal allergies this time of year and it feels just like those seasonal allergies, in all likelihood, it's your seasonal allergies. If there's any symptoms that are inconsistent with that, uh, you know, the safe bet is to get tested just to be on the very safe side. Um, it has gotten easier, fortunately, with the wide availability of testing in most of our communities to get that test. And you can fairly rapidly get a uh, uh, antigen test um, that's then followed up with a PCR as a confirmatory study that's really the more sensitive one. So that, that would be my advice. Hey, uh, one for Brian or Margaret. Uh... What uh, would a government shutdown, what kind of impact would that have on the markets and the economy? And I guess uh, wanted to assign the likelihood of that as well. Ladies first, Margaret. <laughs> oh, thank you. Oh, we've seen this playbook so many times before. Uh, you know, I think the base case is that uh, letting, uh, you know, breaching the debt ceiling or letting it go, not resolving it. It's not good for either political party with midterm elections next year. Right now, of course, um, the Republicans and some of the more moderate Democrats want a lower fiscal package, and they're holding the debt ceiling captive to that. We think it'll go down to the 11th hour, but it will be resolved. Uh, you know, full government shutdown, we, we've been through it. You know, it's, it's disruptive. Um but at the end of the day, you know, we have seen the playbook before, but we, you know, the, the, the real implications for what's going on in the bill market where we do have investors that can't risk buying anything surrounding um, those dates where the Treasury might, in fact, run out of money. And even though we think it's a low probability, you know, they, they shun those. And it's really because they can't. They, they simply have to have that money and they can't get it three days later. So, you know, I think it's disruptive, but our base case is that it does um, resolve itself because we've been through this before and and the last time they let it go, it didn't work out good for either of them. Brian? Yeah, we would echo those same comments. And um, it was a quite a timely question, Dave, because uh, Chairman Powell and uh, Secretary Yellen are actually talking right now to Congress and and really trying to push them to get this deal done. And per our comments earlier, and it echoes what, Margaret says they'll get the deal done. And this is in 2011 uh, when you had a much more contentious situation, the debt downgrade in the United States. So I, I, uh, let's not go back to the myths and untruths of every time this happens, the market goes down. In fact, I think markets will probably rally 
when they start to feel better about this. Plus, remember too, the end of this this week is the end of the of the calendar quarter too. So you're probably going to see some activity because of that. Can't wait. I do feel we've been there a few times before. So uh, Angelique, Brian, Margaret, Paul, um, really appreciate your time. I know our clients do, and uh, I appreciate your honest, robust, and uh, candid candid answers. Um, to our clients on the call, thanks again for joining us. Uh, thanks for being clients, and thanks for being prospective clients, because you're not all clients yet. Uh, it is a tough time. It's challenging for all of us as business leaders. And uh, uh, I want you to know that uh, all of your BMO uh, reps are with you and uh, are available any way we can be to help uh, uh, in many ways. If it's keeping the lights on in your operations, we can do that as well. But uh, in uh, in all the cases, we just want you to know uh, we're here and we want to help and uh, we want to get this economy continuing to move in the right direction. So thanks to everyone. Uh, there will be a recording of this call for on our website for those that uh, couldn't make it now. And uh, thank you again. Thanks to all of our guests and to all of our listeners. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. For more insights, visit bmocm.com slash COVID-19. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns, Inc., and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options or any other activity, which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests, and you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets, insecurities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For full legal disclosure, please visit bmocm.com legal. To access our full disclosures for equity research reports, please visit researchglobalzero.bmocapitalmarkets.com slash public disclosure slash.